0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal. Today our guest is Vika Irani, the head of M&A for Europe at Jones Day in London. Vika, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Lovely to be here, David.
0: So today we're going to talk about a couple of things. First of all, how you came to practice in M&A and at Jones Day what the pandemic has been like from a deal perspective in Europe and how deal terms have changed and lawyers have adapted during COVID-19. And then finally, how you've stayed sane during this whole now almost year-long period. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to the practice and to Jones Day.
1: So, I I mean, look. I guess I sort of came into the law generally through a process of elimination. I'm not one of these people that knew that they wanted to be a lawyer from, you know, from their kind of childhood or early teens. I did law at university wasn't immediately minded to follow the practice of law, if I'm honest. I sort of thought I might like to go into advertising. That's until I did a summer's internship at an advertising agency and quickly changed my mind. So I joined a firm called Goldens in London back in 98, kind of, if I'm honest, with the intent to do a couple of years, get exposure to the city and then figure out something much more interesting that I wanted to do with my life. And I joined, I started doing corporate work, started doing M&A deals and fell in love with it. I just absolutely got hooked on doing the deals, that feeling of satisfaction you get when you know you have kind of quarterbacked even at a young age that sort of that diligence exercise you know what all the issues are you've seen them reflected in the documents and really that feeling of kind of accomplishment right when you're at the closing and back in those days they were physical closings so you saw these huge meeting room tables just laid out with documents that you'd had a hand in and that feeling of helping clients achieve something and 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 bringing kind of different parties together to a common goal I just found that just a lot of fun, which if I'm honest, I wasn't expecting to when I was kind of, you know, like sat in my public law lectures as an undergrad. And I've stayed ever since. Jones Day merged with Gouldens back in 2003. So to me, it kind of feels like I've been at the same firm throughout my career, but there was a fairly, I guess, fundamental shift back in
0: 03. And did that change the kind of deals you found yourself working on the merger?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, Gordon's was a UK only firm, and obviously, Jones Day, even back then, and obviously more so today, is a truly global institution. And so, I think the merger sort of coincided with just generally deals becoming more international. I think what we were finding, even sort of in the run up to the merger, is more and more the work that we were doing for our clients was multi jurisdictional in nature, and so many of our transactions were cross border. And London kind of started becoming a hub for cross-border deals, both in the MA context and then and then also for kind of capital raises and 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 public transactions, right? Kind of post-Sarbanes Oxley, a lot of the international companies that may have originally looked to New York to raise capital started coming to London. And so the timing really was kind of fortuitous in the sense that, you know, just the deal environment generally in the UK was becoming that much more international. And then as part of Jones Day, the client base and the work we were doing just became global kind of
0: overnight. So did you find yourself doing, you know, far more deals in Europe? How did that change your practice, maybe even deals to some extent in the United States?
1: So, I mean, I think the kind of most of what we do now or most of what I've been doing does have a cross-border element to it. There's a large part of the practice that tends to be sort of U.S. clients or other multinationals investing in Europe or in Europe and the Middle East or in Africa and a lot of those deals are governed by English law even if the assets aren't located in the UK right i think english law is seen as a kind of as a body of law and a legal system that's obviously very sophisticated There's a good body of precedent but also that's very familiar to people and so a lot of the deals we do are kind of english law and so we're running them from London, even when the assets and operations are spread quite literally all over the world. And those deals are kind of, you know, hugely satisfying. They have their challenges. They're hugely satisfying and fun to do because what you're actually doing is you're bringing together the sort of the issues and the legal systems from all around the world and effectively reflecting them in deal documentation that kind of works from the perspective of the parties who may be based in the US or the UK or Europe or wherever it might be.
0: Have you seen any change in your practice as a result of Britain's vote to leave the EU in 2016 or Brexit itself just a couple of months ago?
1: So no single change, right? Like I mean, I remember kind of back in the run-up to 2000 when everyone was worried about Y2K and the world kind of coming to an end, right? They quickly developed this sort of this market standard of you know there were a set of due diligence questions you asked and the set of reps that just got put into every single purchase agreement. We haven't had that with Brexit, right? We haven't had a kind of standard response to Brexit because the effects are so changeable. I think there's a number of things that we did see as people tried to cope with the, the potential uncertainty. because For a long time post the vote, no one really knew what Brexit was going to mean. And sort of through the last few years, you know, I've done a number of presentations for clients on Brexit and the implications of it. And every time without fail, it's embarrassing, but every time without fail, as we've been planning the session, I boldly kind of said to them, look, by the time we have the session, we will know, right, what's going to happen because this deadline's coming up or whatever. And every time it has been passed with no certainty. So. For the majority of the kind of four years since the referendum or three and a half or how long it's been, people just didn't know, right? So what you were essentially doing is papering a deal in some respects into the unknown. There were certain things that people were alive to. Obviously, diligence became a huge factor, right, in terms of how the business in question was going to cope with Brexit. Currency was another big one, right, to the extent that you were going to straddle a degree of currency fluctuation because of some sort of either Brexit deadline or Brexit event, how were you going to cope with that? Was any kind of material adverse change qualifier going to be impacted or not by Brexit? So it really became a case of sort of almost deal by deal, figuring out how Brexit was going to impact the target or the transaction documents, and then trying to cater for those rather than having an off the shelf solution, if you like, to plug into transactions. One thing that we possibly did see more of in some quarters is increased use of arbitration provisions, where you had European counterparties, just in case there's a question mark over enforceability of judgments. But it was those sorts of things, right? It was specific issues or provisions that were looked at rather than having a the standard solution to, you know, how do you cope with Brexit in a deal context?
0: So so how would you compare negotiating transactions over the last year, given the challenges of the pandemic, to the uncertainty created by Brexit? Has has the first at all been a template for the second, or the issues are distinct enough that the solutions have to be different as well?
1: I think the issues are kind of distinct, although obviously kind of running them in parallel has just meant that you've sort of in a sense, added uncertainty to uncertainty. So if I think back to the last kind of 12 months or so, I mean, the overriding deal environment has just been an uncertain one, right? You've had kind of COVID-19 and the pandemic, you've had Brexit in Europe, you've had the US elections. And so just generally, we've had this period of incredible uncertainty That, candidly, I think deals have coped with remarkably well. This time last year, I think the the first quarter of last year was actually pretty busy in the context Mm -hmm. of deal activity. That sort of all came crashing to a halt in the second quarter with the COVID-19 related shutdown. I think in that immediate aftermath, we saw probably a couple of things, right? We saw, first of all, people needing to look at the deals that they'd signed but not closed. There was a huge emphasis on that and deal certainty and deal continuity. There were a number of ongoing transactions that were sort of reconstructed, if you like, because a big kind of unknown was pricing and how you were possibly going to price anything in this sort of very bizarre context. We had some deals kind of repapered as options or different kind of mechanics used to address that. The second quarter was probably the quarter, to my mind, that was the quarter that suffered the greatest impact in terms of a deal perspective. A, because nobody knew, right, what was going to happen. Pricing deals was incredibly difficult. There was a sense on the corporate level to kind of preserve cash and preserve liquidity and focus on liquidity, right, rather than focusing on growth and and doing deals. The markets did recover, though, remarkably quickly, and I sort of felt like during the third quarter... People kind of got their heads around how to do deals in the new environment and everyone sort of got over the the we could nevers. Like we could never imagine doing a deal without sitting down with management face to face. We could never imagine doing due diligence without doing a site visit, right? Even just those issues, people kind of got their heads around. And so in the third quarter, deal activity, in my experience, sort of started getting back to, if not completely normal then, you know, certainly in most sectors, a degree of, of normality that you probably wouldn't have predicted back in March or April last year.
0: And has the deal technology changed at all? I mean, in the United States, it's been quite striking that MA agreements, considered broadly, have held up really well. There hasn't been a need to reconceptualize large pieces of the standard MA agreement. You know, maybe some change around the ordinary course covenants. But outside of that, no, is is the same true in the UK and Europe?
1: I think it is, yeah. I mean, we we haven't had to kind of fundamentally redo the way we do M&A deals. And actually, even kind of the deals that were already papered have held up remarkably well. There have been some changes around the edges, understandably. So, you know, obviously, you mentioned ordinary course. That's a phrase that's littered through M&A agreements. And no one probably gave that much thought to before. But, you know, there has been a great focus on what ordinary course means, what carve-outs are appropriate to deal with things like COVID-19, what force majeure provisions look like. I think, you know, people have been revisiting those. Long stop dates for getting things like antitrust approvals is another one. I mean, I do think the authorities have done really remarkably well in terms of maintaining the pace of approvals and that kind of filing process through the pandemic and working from home, et cetera. So, we haven't seen the huge delays that we were perhaps fearing early on, but looking at how long stop dates are constructed, those sorts of provisions around the edges, I think, have come under focus. But by and large, the agreements themselves have really held up pretty well. And it's the provisions that you don't really think about that suddenly you find yourself having to look at perhaps for the first time. So, you know, for example, back in March, we had an issue concerning the services of notices, right? Noted that an agreement provided for notice to be served in person. Well, what does that mean when, you know, when we're in lockdown and everything's shut down, does handing a notice to a security guard really count? How do you get documents notarised, which is a requirement in certain places in Europe when you can't meet in person and go before a notary? Those sorts of issues, I think, provided some interesting legal questions. But the fundamentals have held up pretty well. And actually, the deal environment and the competitive tension has held up pretty well. And So we've been involved in a number of kind of competitive auctions that actually have been just as competitive September, October, November, December, as they were in the first quarter of the year. Execution certainty has always been a huge focus for sellers in the UK and Europe, perhaps even more so than in the US. There is an increased focus on that now because of everything that's going on. So execution certainty really is viewed in the same universe as price when evaluating the different bids. But fundamentally, the process has still been super competitive for the quality assets. Deals are still being done quickly. And we had a deal at the back end of last year that signed about three or four hours after bids were put in. That's another big global auction for a carve-out earlier this year. Again, signed very soon after bids put in. So deals are still being done at pace, even though everyone's had to kind of adjust to the new
0: way of working. And the, the fundamental conception in the UK and Europe that the buyer has effectively purchased the asset when it signs the agreement to do so remains in effect.
1: That's absolutely right. So the buyer traditionally in a UK context, and again, we're talking about, you know, competitive processes, right? In a, in a seller-friendly market that we've had in the UK and Europe for some time, there are very few outs in a UK M&A deal. Once the buyer has signed, absent antitrust filings or other regulatory approvals that are required, there are generally speaking, very few abilities for the buyer to walk away MAC clauses are hugely unusual and would be kind of definitely negatively viewed by the sell side in an auction context. And you typically don't get the ability to walk for breach of rep or breach of covenant. It's very much viewed as you sign the deal and then to the extent that you need a deferred closing because you need to go off and get some approval. You go and do that. There is, generally speaking, a fair amount of negotiation over the standard that applies to your commitment to go and seek that approval. But you're on risk from that point on with very few other ways to terminate the agreement. And so essentially what that's meant for buyers in this period is They don't really have the comfort of knowing that if the pandemic worsens or something else happens, they'll be able to kind of look at their agreements and try and get out of it. It very much is, you know, you're doing the deal the day you sign, bad stuff can happen the next day, but then again, bad stuff can happen the day after you close. And so it is effectively, as much as it can be, a done deal on signing. And one of the other issues we've had in Europe through the last 12 months has actually been an increase in the number of jurisdictions that are introducing foreign investment screening programs, kind of akin to CFIUS. And we've had a number of European jurisdictions either announce an intention to do so or actually bring those in. And so for cross-border deals, what that's meant is you're sort of signing a deal, not really knowing in some cases at that point, whether you're going to need approval from the relevant kind of ministry before closing, because a lot of these laws that are being brought in have retroactive effect and applied deals that are signed and not yet closed. And so that's an interesting negotiation that we've had to have um, in a number of cases about the extent to which a deal can be conditional on a law that's not yet enforced and almost introducing sort of a conditional condition, if you like, for laws that are contemplated but not yet implemented. And all of this just adds to that uncertainty that we were talking about and just a a changing landscape for buyers. I mean, I think for a lot of our clients, they are very international in scope. The deals they're doing are incredibly multi-jurisdictional and it just means that people do need to get to grips with the evolving landscape in different jurisdictions and not only the legal requirements as they are today, but as they're developing.
0: You mentioned buyers getting comfortable with doing deals virtually, for example, not meeting seller management in person. How much of that do you think will persist after the pandemic hopefully ends?
1: I mean, look, when you think back even just 12 months, right, it was only 12 months ago that at least for me, doing a video conference involved booking a meeting room and getting IT to set it up. So I think there is definitely an element of the new way of working and just people's comfort levels with technology and remote working, being here to stay in the sense that it's convenient. I don't think people will, as the base case, do deals without ever doing a site visit or without ever doing kind of management meetings. I think that will resume. But equally, I do think there will be a huge part of what we've all been doing in terms of remote working, WebEx, Zoom, using technology, et cetera, that will continue just because it does facilitate our kind of daily interactions and it does make the work easier.
0: Finally, tell us a little bit about how you've kept a a sense of balance and perspective over the last year.
1: I mean, look, I think kind of the last year has been extraordinary in so many ways. I mean, for for me personally, I've got three kids, 10 and under. So I'm not sure whether it's kind of, you know, balance, sanity, insanity or whatever. But that certainly brought a very different different perspective on things. And, you know, homeschooling, I think, is not one of those features of the pandemic that we will be looking to replicate going forwards. That's for sure. But it's been kind of interesting, right, for them, because work and what I do for a living has been so much more real for them. They've seen me on Webex and Zoom, and they've had a chat with work colleagues, and they've come in and interrupted. And one of the things that actually has been nice about this time and everyone working from home is that the interactions with colleagues around the firm has been so much more Personal. I mean, I think one of the most rewarding things about this career, particularly somewhere like Jones Day that is so collegiate and genuinely one true partnership, is that you in a way feel closer to your friends and colleagues all around the world, right? Because you are FaceTiming them with their kids in the background and your kids in the background and and you do get that glimpse into people's personal lives. And I know my kids have actually brazenly quite enjoyed randomly answering my phone and, and chatting to, you know. <laughs> colleagues from other offices. I came to the kitchen one day and my 10-year-old was having a very animated FaceTime conversation and I assumed he was speaking to like some grandparent or other and made a mental note to kind of congratulate him because he was a lot more animated than he normally is talking to grandparents. And lo and behold, it was one of our partners who would called for me and he'd answered the phone and they were having a lovely conversation. (laughs) That's kind of nice, right? I mean, it always did sort of feel like a family before, but I think now... Just those sort of personal insights
0: has been kind of nice. Vika, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, David. For Drinks With The Deal, I'm David Marcus.